Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, friends, we are in Matthew chapter 7. We left off in verse 21. Today we're going to, after nine weeks, today we're going to finish up the Sermon on the Mount. And you recall that the Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom manifesto. This is Jesus starting things off essentially and saying, look, this is what it's going to mean for you to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or to be a follower of mine. And we pick up where we left off in verse 21. I'll read to the end of the chapter. It says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now it's important to remind ourselves of the immediate context of these verses, specifically the words that were back in verse 15. Back in verse 15, you recall it said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The immediate context of Jesus' words here in verse 21 um, and following is the warning about false prophets in verse 15. Now two weeks ago, you may recall that I linked those false prophets to the statements made, that Jesus made earlier in the sermon about the scribes and the Pharisees and the other rel- religious leaders. He called those folks hypocrites. So in Matthew 6-5, remember this is one long sermon. Took about 20, 30 minutes. Took us about nine weeks, but took them about 20 or 30 minutes to get through. So back in chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus said, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And he went on uh, essentially to name them. He said, They love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So it's those hypocrites that Jesus now declares in chapter 7, verse 21 that he says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now consider those words. I I jotted down, oh my, how arrogant of Jesus to make such a claim. Unless, of course, the claim is true. And it's not arrogant at all. Consider the magnitude of the statement and the person who said it. Here is an obscure teacher from Nazareth. You remember earlier it was said of Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Here is now this guy from this rundown old hick kind of a town, Nazareth, who's making a claim to be the judge of all men in that day. You see there in verse 22, it says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. Now of course, the day that Jesus is referring to 
is the day of judgment. And we read about the day of judgment in a variety of places in the Scripture, but particularly in Revelation chapter 20. So let me read those words to you. I'm not sure if we have this for the screen or not, but in Revelation 20 it says this, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. And from His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, we call this Judgment Day. The day that the passage that I just read makes clear all of humanity will come before God and be judged. So with that in mind, consider once again Jesus' words when He says, and then on that day I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from Me. Again, people in the crowd, perhaps you will declare. Again, what audacity for an uneducated, by the standards of the established religious community, for an uneducated ex-carpenter from the sticks of Galilee to declare that he will be seated on the throne of God and judge all humanity. That's blasphemy. Unless, of course, it's true. And it's not blasphemy at all. And that was the choice that Jesus' listeners would need to make on that day. And it's the choice that each one of us in this room will need to make on this day. Is Jesus who He is claiming to be? Is He Lord who will rightfully be seated on the throne of God's judgment? Or is He some crazy man who has become a little too full of Himself? Well, the Bible says this. It says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So those are your options. Either acknowledge those words to be true and submit yourself to Jesus' Lordship in your life, or conclude that they are false and reject this Jesus as nothing more than a lunatic. Those are the options that are presented to anyone that walks the earth this day. Now again, the context, the context of this teaching is clearly speaking of the false prophets that we spent some time looking at the last two weeks and I read to you this morning. But I think it would be wrong for us to assume that these words are limited to only the false prophets. Because I think there will be, and I think the Scripture makes clear, that there will be many that name the name of Christ that will hear these words, depart from me, I never knew you. And by that I mean those, those folks who falsely profess to know Jesus as Savior. Now we know some things about the Lordship of Christ. We know this. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it makes it clear that no one will enter heaven unless they say that Jesus is Lord. That a proper verbal confession of Jesus as Lord is vital, but never enough by itself. Because as today's passage makes clear, there will be many that call Jesus Lord that will not be saved. Not everyone that calls Jesus Lord is going to heaven. You hear that? Not everyone that calls Jesus Lord is going to heaven. 
In another place, the Gospel writer Luke records for us Jesus is saying this. He says, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I have commanded you? You see, it seems sometimes we forget that Lord is Jesus' title, not His name. His name is not Lord Jesus Christ, first, middle, and last. Lord is not His name, but His title. And that title signifies the relationship of a master with a servant. A Lord has the right to total control of a servant's life. When we say servant, think slave. A Lord has the right to total control of a servant's life. So again, Luke records for us that Jesus declared, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I have commanded you? It doesn't make sense to call me Lord, Jesus is saying, and not do what I say. Call me advisor. Call me person of influence in my life. Call me consultant. But don't call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say. That's not what the word means. There are many that do not have a proper understanding of the Lordship of Christ. Often we hear the question, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? As if the two can be separated. They cannot. To accept Jesus as Savior is to accept Him as Lord. To accept Jesus as Savior is to accept Him as Lord. It's an exchanging of your life for His. It's as if you came to the foot of the cross recognizing that what Jesus did there on the cross was on your behalf, and that led you to say to Him, Sir, I accept your gift of salvation. Is there anything I can give you in exchange for your troubles? To which He responds, well, I'll trade you my life for yours. I'll give my life for you. You in turn live your life for Me. That's Lordship. He is Lord. And we are servants. So let me ask you, does that describe the type of relationship you have with Jesus? If you're calling Jesus Lord, and yet disobeying His commands, then you have to seriously question whether or not He is indeed your Lord. If He is calling you to serve in some way, and you respond with, you know, I'm kind of busy. What other options do you have to offer? Then you have to seriously question whether or not He is indeed your Lord. Now no doubt some of you are sitting here thinking today, what are you talking about? I've gone to church all my life. I volunteered in Sunday school for years. That should get you into heaven. I give my time, I give my money, I give my efforts to help the less fortunate. How dare you question whether or not Jesus is my Lord? And to that, I would respond this way. Drawing your attention back to verse 22. Look at it again. It says, they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? And cast out demons in Your name? And do mighty works in Your name? Here are people that are prophesying in Jesus' name. They're casting out demons in Jesus' name. They're doing mighty works. That could be translated miraculous works in Jesus' name. And none of those people are going to get into heaven. With all due respect, their deeds of casting out demons and preaching mighty sermons and prophesying in His name, they're a little bit more impressive than you're coming to church one day a week or volunteering in Sunday school. These people are casting out devils. They're performing miracles. They're preaching sermons to the masses, and yet still, they will not enter heaven. 
We remind ourselves of what Jesus said just a few verses back. Verse 14, it says, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There is one means of salvation. The man Christ Jesus. No one's good deeds, no matter how spectacular they may be, will get them there. Saying the right thing, Lord, Lord, is not enough. It's our obedience that proves His Lordship. There's an interesting example of this in the Bible. It's in Acts chapter 8 and 9. And in Acts chapter 8 and 9, you have the account of the first century rabbi, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Now Saul was a man that was committed to the ways of God and he took it upon himself to squash the rise of this new Jewish sect, the Christians, by force if necessary. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 7 that it was Saul that gave the order for the murder of Christianity's first martyr, a guy by the name of Stephen. And as Acts chapter 8 and 9 go on to say, Saul went forth ravaging the church. He went forth entering house after house, dragging men and women off to prison, breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he did all of that until the Lord intervened. And we read in Acts 9 that the Lord appeared to him in a bright light knocked him from the horse that he was riding and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now here's the point of why I bring this up. Paul's next words, I want you to take notice of in Jesus' response. Paul says to him, or Saul I should say, says to him, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Saul says, who are you, Lord? He called him Lord, but he didn't know him as Lord. And Jesus responds and he says, I'm Jesus. All this time, Saul thought he was serving God by doing what he was doing. Just as these false prophets here in Matthew chapter 7 thought they were serving God. Again, they preached their sermons, they cast out devils, they performed miracles, each one of those things impressive, but they don't prove the lordship of Christ in their lives. Now let me make a, uh, take a moment to make an aside here. God still worked through these false prophets. Miracles still took place. Sermons still got preached. Demons were still cast out. God still worked through these false prophets. A miracle does not have to be of divine origin. The definition of a miracle is simply a supernatural power at work. Now that power, we know, can be of God, as we often see in the Scripture, or it could be a power that is given to a person by the hand of Satan. So I bring it up because miracles don't prove anything. Okay? So, yeah, I know this guy's preaching is way off, but look at the miracles. No, miracles don't prove anything. Because a miracle is simply something of divine supernatural power. That could be of God, or it could be of the enemy. It could be of Satan. It could be a power given to a person by the hand of Satan. We see in the Scripture, Simon the sorcerer. This is also in Acts chapter 8. It says he performed all sorts of miracles. You recall back in the book of Exodus, chapter 4 and the chapters following, Pharaoh's magicians, they were able to replicate the miraculous. So Moses came in, a miracle was performed, the magicians replicated those miracles. They were able to do it as well. Again, miracles prove nothing. And again, each of these folks, these things I should say, that these folks are pointing to, they're impressive, but they don't prove God's Lordship or Christ's Lordship. They may have preached... But did they preach with the right intentions? They may have done the miraculous, 
but did they do those wonderful works for the right reasons? They may have cast out devils, but did they do so through the reliance on the power of God? There will be many that do many great things in His name, yet they only knew His name. They did not know Him. And more importantly, He did not know them, as it says in verse 23. Now these are not people that lost their salvation. Again, He says, I never knew you. These are people that never had salvation. These are people that had deceived themselves, convincing themselves that because of their good deeds that they were okay. It is possible to deceive yourself into thinking that you are okay. Despite the fact that the Bible teaches that sin separates us from a holy God and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, many have convinced themselves that that is not true. That they're going to get into heaven based on their goodness. They say, sure, I've sinned and of course God is holy, but I'm not that bad. We rationalize our behavior and we conclude we are okay. We compare ourselves with others and we conclude we are okay. We determine that God is loving. God's all loving. And conclude that we are okay. We say we call Him Lord despite the fact that we don't treat Him as Lord and we conclude that we are okay. It is possible, and I might go as far as saying it is probable to deceive yourself and think you are okay. James, the writer of the epistle that bears his name, he wrote of a group of people that were at risk of deceiving themselves. James chapter 1.22, he says, Be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. One who hears and does not do has deceived themselves. Now, Throughout the history of the church, Christians have often been referred to as people of the book. As a reference to their adherence to the Word of God. How can somebody be a person of the book if they don't keep the book? Can you be? Are you sure you haven't deceived yourself? Now, I do want to be careful here because I don't want to give the impression and I don't want any of us to leave here concluding that lest we keep every word perfectly of the book, that we should conclude that we're liars and that we've been deceived. I'm not talking about being perfect and without sin. I'm talking about being without rebellion, and there's a big difference between the two. One says, God, I know, but I don't care, and I'm going to do what I want to do. The other says, oh God, help me and keep me from falling. The Apostle Peter, he wrote this, he said, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make your calling and your election sure. That simply means make certain you are relying on the right thing for forgiveness and for cleansing and for eternal life. So how do we do that? How do we make sure that we are properly in the Lord? Well, some will say, well, just search out your heart. And that might be helpful to take some time to check your motivations, check your intentions. But I think searching out our hearts will even have its limitations because the Scripture clearly declares that our hearts are deceitful and that they are desperately wicked. We read that in Jeremiah chapter 17. The only real way to be sure is to ask the Lord to search out your heart. That's what David did. 
In Psalm chapter 139, David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. Constant communion with the Lord. A developing sensitivity to His voice. A determination to follow the path that He leads you on. And a shared life with others that are doing the same thing. Those are the ways we can be sure we are not deceiving ourselves. We are not deceiving ourselves. As we read earlier, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so, with that in mind, Jesus continues his sermon. Look at verse 24. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain and the floods and the winds came against that house, it fell, and great was its fall. First thing I want you to notice is this. Each one of these homes, the house on the rock and the house on the sand, they looked very much alike from the exterior. They both looked fine. They both functioned fine. But Jesus knew there would come a time when they they both would not be fine. Sometimes I think we look at a person's life and think they have it all together. And that everything in their life is fine. And we either conclude or we act as if we have concluded that that person doesn't really need the foundation of Jesus in their life. We are more likely to conclude that the drugged up homeless guy on the streets of Trenton is more in need than the soccer mom from the suburbs. Now don't ignore the homeless guy and his need for a savior. But at the same time, don't forget the soccer mom is just as desperate for that same savior. A person's life may look like they have it very much together. In fact, the house that's built on the sand is typically much more preferred, isn't it? You pay top dollar to have your house built down at the beach. Yet the reality is this, that the home, that home is ill-prepared for when the storms come. It's the storms of life that will ultimately reveal the truth. So notice in verses 25 and 27, it says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew. It doesn't say if the rain falls and the floods come, but it says when the rain falls and the floods come. The storms will come. Each one of our lives will be shaken. Our foundation will be tested at some time or another. Being a child of God does not make us immune to life's difficulties and trials. In fact, to quote the Apostle Peter again, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Difficulties and trials are a part of life in this fallen world. Will the life that you have built, will it have the foundation or not when those trials do come? Second point that I want to draw out about this is, notice also, sometimes the storms of life, they come from above. The rain fell, it said. Other times the storms of this life, they come from below. It says, and the floods came. We know this from the testimony of the Word of God, that God allows storms to arise that will test our foundation in order that we might see where we stand. It's a test. 
uh, for him to learn how we are doing in our growth process. It's a test for us so that we might see where we stand. God allows difficulties in our lives to refine us. Believe it or not, God brings difficulties in our lives to accomplish His purposes. And so this is why we are told in James also, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses life's difficulties to accomplish His purposes. Now the ultimate test of a person's foundation will will be their summoning before the judgment seat. And that is, what I mean by that is, that is their death. And again, as we saw a little bit earlier, all the dead, all the dead will come and stand before that throne. And the books will be open. Both the rich and the poor will stand before that judgment seat. Both the educated and the uneducated will stand before that seat. The homeless guy down in Trenton and the soccer mom from Pennington will all stand before that judgment seat. All the dead will appear before the throne of God's judgment to be judged. That will be the ultimate test of anyone's foundation. And again, we ask the question, will your foundation stand in that day? Proverbs 10.25 says this, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Life's difficulties and life's trials can actually be blessings if they are used to accomplish the purposes of God. And it is better to have the foundation of your life tested now than when it is too late to make any changes to your destiny. Let me make one final point on this idea. This is from 1 Corinthians 3. I'm actually stealing this from the Apostle Paul. He said, no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds in the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. The day, see that word again there, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Will your house be able to stand and withstand the day of judgment? Now back to Jesus' words in verse 24. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of Mine and does them, he will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's not enough to hear these sayings or even agree with these sayings. We have to put these sayings into practice. The truth Christ is presenting in this sermon necessitates a decision concerning the truth of His words and His person. Notice, the second builder didn't have a bad foundation. He had no foundation. The second builder thought, took no thought to the foundation. And thus, his building collapsed when the storms came. Now, I think there's two ways that we can apply this parable. There's the application related to the issue of salvation. What's your plan for the day when you stand before the throne of God? Everyone will. What's your plan for that day? Will you stand there hoping that your foundation is strong enough? Will you stand there hoping you did enough good deeds here on the earth? Will you stand there hoping that the Bible was wrong and that heaven's entrance is instead gained by the balances of life? That if your good outweighs your bad, that everything will be okay? 
Let me ask you this. Is your life built upon the rock that is described in this parable? Not a rock. Not one of many rocks, but the rock. Jesus the Christ who gave His life as a ransom for many that whoever believes on Him would not perish but have eternal life. The first application deals with the issue of salvation. What's your plan for when you stand before the throne of God after you have died? And the second application of this parable relates to the issue of lordship. And again, we ask the same question, is your life built upon the rock? We know this. A day will come when every aspect of our lives will be weighed in the balance. I find this question of Charles Spurgeon so piercing. Loosely, it's translated this way, or it's written this way. He says, what is the chief object of our lives? And will we think of as much of it in that day as we do now? I'll pose this question. Christian, what are you living your life for? Honestly. When you boil it all down to the heart of the matter, what are you chasing after? What are you pursuing more than anything else? What's the passion of your life? And again, to quote Spurgeon, Spurgeon will you think, of mu- think as much of it in that day as you do now? All our building, if it is to survive, must be sure-founded on the rock of Christ's teaching. We can hear His words, We can even admire His words. But it's the wise builder that not only hears His words and admires His words, but does His words. That's the wise builder who built his life on the sure foundation. Now, as I've mentioned throughout these messages on the Sermon on the Mount, we can hear these words and we can conclude, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to get to it. Starting today, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And I suspect many of us have been there at some point in time or another. After a retreat, after a good Bible study or something like that, we've been there where we've committed ourselves to buckle down and really get it done. Pledging to do it. The problem is this. A week goes by, a month goes by, and pretty soon we're no longer as committed. Our fervor begins to wane a bit and we find ourselves slipping back into some of the old habits. Can I then can I just remind us of this truth? None of us here can keep the sermon on the mount in our own power. You and I can only keep these things in the power of the new life that Christ imparts when we believe. G. Campbell Morgan, he said this, he said the mount of ethical annunciation, that's his description of the sermon on the mount. He says, the mount of ethical enunciation reveals the need for the mount of the cross. And that is this. That means this. That the place where this great sermon of what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is preached. The place where this sermon was preached, it should bring us back in our mind and back in our heart to the place where it all began for us spiritually. And that's the mount of the cross. Because it was at that mount, the Mount of Calvary, where new life was given for all of those that believe. It was at the Mount of Calvary where failure was washed and cleansed. And it's at the Mount of Calvary where the Holy Spirit was imparted. And that's where the power comes to live this life. And we move on to the final verses. Look at 28 and 9 again. It says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching because He taught them 
as one as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Whenever God's Word is presented as just that, God's Word, its inherent power will astonish people. It sets itself apart from the opinions of mere men. And I encourage you, trust in the power of God's Word and the message of the Gospel to convert people's hearts. Oftentimes we're shy, so we'll talk to people and, you know, I don't, for me, this, you know, this is, it's been good for me. You know, maybe you could consider it or something like that. Now, if you were a salesman and you came to me with that pitch, I would thank you for your time and send you on your way until somebody else came along that was convinced of their product. Don't be shy about sharing the Word of God and the message of the Gospel. Presented boldly, tactfully certainly, respectfully. Some people just like to be jerks. And so they've taken on the ministry of evangelism because they can really tell people how it is or whatever. With respect, with tact certainly, but boldly. And boldly allow God to use it as He has throughout the millennia. The power of that which Jesus preached astonished them. But they were also astonished not only by what He taught them, but how He taught them. Because He taught them as it is with authority. And I mentioned this previously in a study, but I think it bears repeating now in the context of our study. The tendency of all the other teachers of that day was to quote everybody else. Nobody really wanted to put their neck out and speak with any sense of authority except this carpenter guy from Nazareth. One group of commentators, they contrasted Jesus' teaching from the others by saying this, His was a voice, theirs was an echo. And it's because of that authoritative approach that Jesus came to them with that people were drawn. They heard His words and they said, "This this is a guy that knows. Now, of course he knows. He's the author of the book. And of course he could speak with authority on these things. Indeed, that is true. But that doesn't mean that you and I can't be any less authoritative as it is pertaining to presenting the Word of God. Present the Word of God boldly. Respectfully, but boldly. Present its truths with confidence. Certain of these things. Certain of the Scripture. That they be so. As these last few verses of this sermon that we've considered today have made it clear, Jesus will not be satisfied with any of us in this room today that have read through this sermon, considered this sermon. He will not be satisfied with any of us simply saying, wow, that was neat. That's good stuff. Boy, that's astonishing. That won't satisfy the Lord. What would satisfy the Lord is that people take that teaching and put it into practice. Be a doer of God's Word and not a hearer only. And I encourage you with that message. I think this is a challenging message. I would say this, and I hope it's not true, but I suspect it is. There are some of you here in this room that will stand before the judgment seat and discover that you're not saved. It's a tough message. It's not my decision. But based on what we've considered here in the Scripture, I would think it would do every one of us very well to take some time to search out our hearts and make sure that we are in the Lord 
and that we are in the Lord by our definition by the right reasons. Not on our good deeds, not on our spectacular deeds, not on our mighty deeds, not because we come to church and Calvary Chapel or anything like that, but because we come to the foot of the cross, we recognize that Jesus gave His life for us and we said, you can have my life in exchange and we've made Him the Lord of our lives, which again means to do what He says. He leads, you lead, you follow, I should say. So let's just take a moment or two. We'll have the band come back up. But let's just take a moment or two to have some quiet time to go before the Lord. Father, we... I trust in Your Word, Lord, this morning. And Lord, I think almost all of us here believe, Lord, that it is true. Lord, we recognize that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Father, we understand, or perhaps in a better way this morning, what it means for You to be the Lord of our lives, Lord. It's to take up Christ and to lay down self. And so, Father, just in the quietness of uh, the remainder of our time or a portion of our time, that we ask that you would come and you'd minister into our hearts. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.